Hello everyone, welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I have been around cybersecurity for the last 20 years and I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory for companies. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I've been intrigued to learn how a company starts. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have Punima here from Menlo Security to talk about her inspiration and her journey. Can you please tell me about yourself and the company? Hi, Evgeny. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this opportunity. So tell you a little bit about myself. I've been in the security industry for too long, 25 plus years. And then here at Menlo, I am the co-founder, but also the chief product officer. Under my remit is all of product management, engineering, and how we deliver our service, which is around tech ops. Also, after our customers acquired the product, so professional services, customer support is also my responsibility. And for a good bit, I'm also responsible for Menlo's own security, right? So we do have a CISO who does a great job, but that organization also sits with me. So I have all things technical responsibility at Menlo. And so to tell you a little bit about the company, like I mentioned, we've been in the security industry for a long time. And the genesis of Menlo's founding is, I would say, twofold, right? One is our focus on browser. So very early on, we recognized that kind of the modern way of working is very much spent on browser and apps, right? Be it SaaS or things you do with your own enterprise application or the broader internet. I think there are statistics that show that most knowledge workers spend somewhere between 75 to 85% of their time in their browser. So we started out our journey with very much the focus on how do you protect a user using a browser and connecting to various assets And that's where we came up with the architecture of what we call browser isolation. That was how do you protect those users as they're doing their work in the browser. Now, the second part of our evolution, which is, I think, very important, is about saying, let's do something different. So we solve a problem more conclusively than just incrementally, we have seen security over a period of time, right? Security has got incrementally better for years. And we wanted to change the architecture in a way that if you said you're using Menlo, you have a big chunk of your problem solved and you can go spend time somewhere else. The focus on browser and the change in architecture and paradigm in a way that you can feel confident about solving the problem. Those were maybe the two main things we started Menlo with. For me personally, I'm very passionate about network security and about the space of RBI and browser security in general. As much as I want to go to the technical part, and by the way, everybody that's listening right now, go to security architecture, go to season four, Manuel was there, we spoke about architecture, we spoke about how you guys did this. But here we're going to dive into more of the company journey and the business journey right now. For sure. And I really wonder... You guys were pioneers. You guys were one of the first that started this entire journey. Like what happened during this time, I believe, what, nine years ago? That even moved you to the idea, let's do that. Let's not do proxy. Let's not do firewalls. Let's not do EDR. Let's do that. 
So when we started the company, we came out of Juniper Networks, right? And Juniper actually had an investment in FireEye. So at the time, FireEye was the newest technology, darling. Tiny toy. Exactly. (laughs) Of the security stack. And then we looked at that and to your question about like, how did you get to where we got to? We looked at that and said, most of the time, security has always been, I know something, right? Compared to what others do, or I know something that the bad guy is doing. Now I'm able to protect you. If you take antivirus, I've seen the file before. If I see proxy or URL filtering, I know something about this website. So the prior knowledge of badness was a key point of success of your security efficacy. That's how it was. And then we looked around and said, wait a minute, there has to be a better architecture. What if you were always secure, right? That was one thing we truly started thinking about. And then that's where we ended up with, what if there was a gap between something that was active execution versus something that was not? So that was our first thought. Then as we started going down that path, we realized that isolating the whole system was going to be very bad user experience. Right now you're getting in the way of lots of things that the user did, like opening a document and all of these things. And then we narrowed it down to what is something the user is interfacing with the outer world, which is where you're the most vulnerable. So we made our way to the browser. And then once we made our way to the browser, we had to think about user experience, right? There are a lot of bad implementations of any technology out there, which colors people's thinking about the technology. But we then came up with, like you said, a pioneering methodology where rather than just take pixels, how about we disintegrate the browser and do it in a way that delivers the right user experience, the right performance. So it was kind of a journey, right? Here is the good versus bad whack-a-mole that everybody's playing. How about we change the architecture, but then the entire architecture was too much. So what is the thing that's the most important? Then we got to the browser. And then once we got to the browser, our focus was very much of how do we deliver a user experience and a performance that is indistinguishable to make sure that you use it, right? Because the big challenge with most security technologies, especially as it touches the user, is if it's not done right, then the user won't use it, right? So you haven't actually accomplished anything. Yeah, user experience is important. And we saw several companies that try to virtualize everything and we don't use them anymore. So we're not going to focus <laughs> why. Now, what you're describing is quite a lot. And what you're describing here may work, may not work. And I want to understand, did you actually went, guys, to different CISOs, managers, and understand if we build it, would you buy it? Yeah, it's not so much as would you buy it. That part of it is you still have to earn your earn the business. But to your point, we did, right? I remember the early days of Menlo for any startup, I call it the navel-gazing phase, right? Like you're just brainstorming and talking to potential customers or potential CISOs who have, I call it maverick CISOs or forward-thinking CISOs, right? There is definitely a group of CISOs who are like, hey, this makes sense for my environment and everybody's doing it, I'll do it. 
But there are CISOs who are like a delightful you know, group of people who are always looking for the next thing. Here's a problem that I've been wrestling with for 10 years. I haven't made any progress. So it was very key for us to find those conversations early on to say, you have this problem. If we solve it this way, does it make sense? And I think of all of the things that we've done over the last 10 years, the thing that I'm really proud of at Menlo is we are very close to our customers, right? Like myself, our CEO, all of the product team, we're always iterating with customers. And this is the joy of the SaaS environment and the agile environment and all of these new things that we work with. We so even take all of our mock-ups and go to our customer and say, what do you think about this workflow? So, so we're very close to our customer, but I think it was that I remember going on a trip to New York and we'd booked 14 meetings in three days. And all of those meetings were this simple concept of browser is your window to the world. You're not going to shut it down. That is where everything is coming from. Here is a different architecture. Does it make sense? And it was so overwhelmingly positive that we knew we had hit on an idea that was going to solve some real problems. So now you have an idea, you get some positive feedback, you need to raise money. How hard it was to raise money? And maybe you can share some of the experience also for people that are trying to start their own business, lesson learned potential. Yeah, look, I think definitely, I think somebody in the high-tech industry said, know your tribe. So the benefit of having been in the security industry for long enough, we had the advantage of knowing people who were interested in saying, hey, what are you guys up to? So there's that group of people. But at the same time, you don't want to just get into an echo chamber and talk to just those people. So I can say that even as we went through our Series A, we probably talked to anywhere between a dozen to 15 different venture capitalists. And to your point about somebody who's listening, who's wanting to raise the money, maybe who's doing it for the first time, the best advice I can give, which we did, and I don't know if we did it as consciously, but we did a good job, was to say, who are your VCs? Who are your feedback sounding boards, right? So they may be, for whatever reason, not the right profile of your investor, but VCs here, like tens of pitches in a week, they all have an excellent ear for the story, the market definition, and all of those things. So we did an excellent job shortlisting our sounding board VCs before we went to the VCs, which we knew were our kind of target for raising the capital, right? So I would advise everybody, even if it is not a VC who's going, who is going to give you the money for whatever different reasons, make sure you get that feedback and make and we are you're able to incorporate that feedback into customer conversations, the market, all of those data points that really make your pitch and presentation stronger. Spend the time to go through that analysis before you go to the real kind of VCs that you're targeting to get raise capital, right? Like it was an interesting lesson for us to learn. And I think we did a good job around that. This is a very good advice. Thank you. I hope people will appreciate it. Maybe in the future, we'll hear about their stories as well. Yeah. After you got the money, now you need to hire people. So depend on the 
companies I'm interviewing, I had a lot of companies that started during the pandemic. I have quite a user meet there for a long time. And I definitely see a difference between companies that started a couple of years before the pandemic and during the pandemic. Because before the pandemic, it was more about, okay, I have an office, people are going to come in. There was no, why would I have remote people? But still, the concept of people is the same. Maybe working with them virtually is a bit harder. So tell me about your vision, who to hire and who not to hire, because we are different people, and it doesn't mean we need to hire people like us. We want to hire people that maybe complement our weakest points. Yeah, it, it's a great question, right? So I think a good idea is one piece of it. A huge part of your success is around execution. And execution is 100% around the people you hire, right? Like you're only able to do so much yourself. You're never going to accomplish what we accomplish in actual company without hiring good people. So from a philosophy perspective, I think most startups will agree to this, where in the beginning stages, let's say two years of your startup, right? You hire what I call more of the generalists, right? And there is a very select group of people who really have the talent to span across a very broad spectrum of topics, be it networking and user experience, talking to customers, like people who have a very unique skill set. And you want to build that team first, right? Like your first three, four years of your company is about what I call rockstar generalists who can bring that to the table. Once you start I think it's the founder of Indeed.com. There is a point in time in your journey where you he calls them higher pointy people. You'll see your team move from generalists to specialists for things that really matter for the company. And then there will still be the generalists that you need. But that team configuration, how you build that team of the rockstar generalists to the specialists and expansion of the team, that was a huge learning and an observation for me, right? Nobody had distinctly told me that this is how you should do it. That's how we ended up doing it and were successful. But I think it's practice that startup founders should be thinking about is what is my first three-year team to what is my scaling team, right? So That's this is the- technical skills. And I think it's a very good advice. Can we go deeper and talk about personal skills? I can be an amazing technology person but I can be an asshole as well at the same time. Yeah. So it's an interesting question. I usually look for kind of three things in people, right? I'm a big fan of the rule of three, right? Most people won't remember anything more than three anyway. So three is perfect for you to do. I think the first two are easy. First one is area of depth and expertise because you don't have the time to teach people new skills in that first period of time where you need to be moving fast. So experience, relevant experience is an important one. Judgment is so huge, so hard to interview for and so hard to hire for, but you can with practice tell the, we call it the smell test, right? You can tell if you give somebody an A and a B, what their judgment of that situation looks like. And that's very important. And the third one is what you mentioned, right? Which is your ability to operate as a team. I'm a big fan of listening to lots of podcasts and lots of books about how you build high-functioning teams and the focus on team, how you build a team changes, but 
I think that focus on high-functioning teams is super important in that third aspect of how you hire people. So it's relevant technical experience, judgment, and the team dynamics. And, and it changes over time, right? To your question, maybe when the team is smaller and you are dealing with those rock star generalists, you will get a couple of people who are not the perfect profile, but that's okay because you're going to have them learn to respect each other on other dimensions. But when you get to scale, your ability to absorb and the toxicity of somebody who's not a good fit for your team starts to multiply. So again, I'm always telling anybody who asks me for advice is who you are when you're under 50 and what that configuration of the team is going to be very different than when you're 100 and when you're 300 and 500, right? And don't think one formula is going to apply all the time is maybe the biggest thing that you want to be aware of. When the pandemic started, how the dynamic changed for you and the company from the communication perspective, from basically team meetings or whatever you guys did to change? Because we all need to change. We all need to adapt to what's happening. I think we observed a few points of change, right? So the first one is from a hiring perspective. We always had the, what I call talent first philosophy, right? So if somebody that is really good fit for Menlo lives in a different region, we're okay with that. And we have all of the tools and the infrastructure for us to be able to absorb that person into a fully functioning member of our team. But with the pandemic, it really opened up the world for us, right? We were still trying to do it as certain centers of like where people were able to come and visit as a team. But with the pandemic, we said, look, the world is our oyster. We'll go, we'll hire people anywhere. So to me, that was extremely liberating and a great way to test all of our processes and embrace what I think was a benefit in the long run. And then the second bucket of it I'll put is all of us adapting to that always virtual world, right? So we went through again, certain steps of what are the tools we need for, as funny as it sounds, one of the biggest things that we got back from our engineers is like, we're so used to whiteboarding. This virtual thing is killing us because we can't communicate as effectively without a whiteboard. So we said, okay, let's go solve that. So Pandemic was new for all of us, but every time we hit a efficiency bump, we would go solve it. So by the time we ended the pandemic, I felt like we were really operating very well oiled way. People still missed the interaction, the people aspect of your job. But I think we were very intentional and deliberate in solving each of our problems and having the benefit of hiring talent anywhere in the world. I'm wondering in what point you understood that you're actually building something, what did you want to build or you needed to pivot? Because you started, you're building, you're starting to sell, but in one point you can crystallize, yes, this is the correct path. I don't need to change anything else. I think to be realistic and humble about it, you never get to a point where everything is just humming and I'm like, okay, my job here is done and move on with life, right? So unfortunately, you never reach that because there's always evolution. But I think to your question about where we felt like we actually had delivered and arrived in a way was when we hit our 1 million users on the platform. 
And when we hit that million users and we would see that customers are using Menlo for 90% of their browsing, we felt like we actually had really reached a milestone where we are delivering good user experience that people are using it as much as they're using. And the quantity of users is big enough to say that this, this really is delivering on the promise, right? So that was maybe one of the first ones where we said that. And then, of course, there are revenue milestones along the way, right, which kind of make you stop and recognize that, yes, this is actually generating, people are willing to pay for it and doing all of that. The other kind of, I think, was a very big moment for Menlo is we didn't have a government sales team. And there was an RFP from the U.S. Department of Defense that we just participated because it felt right. It sounded like they were asking for what we had built. And we didn't know there were like 27 giant vendors competing for it, right? And then we ended up winning it two years later. And the largest deployment for Menlo is that three and a half million users of the U.S. Department of Defense. And to me, the biggest or the proudest point of it is we walked in there with no knowledge against incumbents or against big companies. To me, an amazing example of meritocracy, right? And just, this, is, this is so interesting what you're saying right now, because there is a philosophy of ignorance or philosophy I don't want to know. <laughs> right. And basically, I'm, I have a kind of an idea that if you knew there are 27 vendors, right, you may change your mind. You're like, why would you even do this? It's not. What's a, but you didn't know. You just went with it with everything you can and you did it. And I don't know if it's a philosophy or what it is there, but something is in your mind may work different if you knew. Yeah. And, and I think that's the part that I look back and enjoy, right? Like we competed purely against ourselves in a way, right? Like we just showed up and did what we would do best. And to your point, if I knew there were 27 vendors, maybe our approach would have changed, right? Like now you're trying to position against a competitive product or maybe Impress. you're not. <laughs> exactly. Maybe you're not focusing on the right things that are important for the customer. But to me, it was such a pure dialogue between a customer and Menlo's product capabilities. And we won purely as on the merit of what we delivered, which was to me, I, I was so steeped in it and it was a phenomenal experience. It's something I'll cherish a lot with Menlo, no matter how many years. So we'll actually go talk about uh, marketing and positioning because I call it chicken in the app. And many times when the customer talks to the vendors, or there's RFPs, there's like gray answers. Yes, we can do it in Q4. Oh yes, we can do it next year. So what was Menlo philosophy when the customer asking, do you have this? Would you say yes and go develop it or say no, but we plan to do it or no, it's not in our plan at all to do it because of X, Y, Z? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would put it probably in two categories, right? The first one is we don't have kind of the corner on all great ideas, right? So you'd be very surprised, like some of the best features that we have in our product were customers coming back to us and going, this is not working or something here is sticking. So product team's ability to listen to that is super, super important. Once you listen to it and you have that list, the first filter, is this feature going to be just for this customer who may have a convoluted architecture or something different, or does it benefit 
all my customers and the broader market, right? Like the evolution of the product benefits a lot from the customer input, but from the filter of saying, from a priority perspective, what's the one that's going to have the broadest impact, right? Makes my 100 customers' lives easier rather than one, right? So that's the first filter. And then you go down to the second one, we'll absolutely do some things that a customer wants because either they're a big customer or it's a big enough problem that may not apply to everybody. But on kind of balance, 80, 90% of your features should be product evolution, should be evolution of the platform, evolution of solving new problems or solving them better. And we will absolutely do 20% of, hey, they want this button to be a different color or the pop-up dialogue to be in a certain way that some customers who are very specific will drive it and will do it because it's the right engagement with that particular customer. We're going to transition a bit to business. Sure. And I love this topic. As a founder, you have to sell. As a technical founder, it's not something that people like to do or not always their first choice of doing, but there is no other way. So you as a technical founder, tell me about you and selling how did it work? Did you like it? Do you like it now? Or whatever you think it's appropriate in this case, because I think it's very important. <laughs> yeah, no, look, I think a technical founder will come at it from a slightly different perspective than maybe a sales founder or maybe even a CEO who's selling it at a business level. I like my selling platform a lot more than the other one for sure, right? So when you're a CEO or when you're a salesperson, you're maybe engaging with certain dimensions of selling, which may be around ROI, which may be around like budgets and things like that. More times than not, I get the purity of a customer conversation of what are you trying to solve? Let me show you how I can solve that problem for you and tell me what I'm missing. So for me, most of my selling is more of a dialogue with the customer and a learning opportunity for me of what am I missing and what are we building? So my selling voice and my selling platform is a lot more technical and technical advisory in nature. And I think that works really well for who I am as a person too. Again, like I said, I've been doing this for 25 years and I think I would recognize any security product you've used over the last 25 years. So I'm not only able to tell you how Menlo will solve your problem, but I'm able to contextualize that into here is how it'll work in your broader environment. And I think people appreciate that a lot, right? Like I never walk into a conversation assuming I have all the right ideas and we built it perfectly. And listening and trying to solve the customer problem, I think, is my strength, right? Like when I come to a customer and they'll throw me a problem of, oh, but I want to access the SaaS with the specific IP and cloud services can't do that. We take that away and we come back to them and say, hey, how about if we did it like this, would it solve it? And that dialogue is precious and hugely positive for the company and the product. So it's a different selling voice, but I think it's a necessary and works for me. I think what you brought us right now, I wish many companies will think about this. Unfortunately, I see so many companies that say we are the best, we're the only one, we're the pioneers. And in reality, nobody cares because it's uh, not about you. It's about the ecosystem. 
if you build the best tires for the car, it doesn't help anyone if the other parts of the car are not matching with your tires. Right, Ooh. right. And this is the biggest problem we see right now. I have AI, I have ML, I have that. How are you going to work with everything else? How are you going to work with my IAM? How are you going to work with my same? How are people going to read your reports? Do I need another 55 dashboards? So I really hope people are going to look more about the integration, the ecosystem, and do greater good and not just claim awards and stuff that help someone, but yeah. I'm not sure who. Yeah. No, security industry is a little bit schizophrenic when it comes to that, right? Like we go through these waves of, oh my God, I want everything from one vendor to wait a minute, that everything is not, everything is like 30% of what I want. So now I want best of breed. So we swing. I don't know if you remember the consolidation around the 2000 timeframe, 2001 and two timeframe where there was that. And then people were like, eh, it doesn't make sense. And but in, two, in 2000, there was a beautiful time. There were like five products, like firewall, <laughs> antivirus, immune security, and but, maybe some like, that's it. There were not too many. But there were companies that tried yes. to consolidate oh, all of oh, that. Oh, definitely, and, definitely. And, yes. UTM is the big one, next generation firewalls. But there was no 150 different vendors categories. We have only for the endpoint, there's eight right now, cloud, there's 15. So right yeah. now it's application security. I don't even know how many categories there are right now under application security. Sounds like everybody come up with a new one every week. Yeah. But we, let's go back to the topic about finding and uh, founders. I'm thinking that probably when you talk to the technical people and because okay. you're technical as well, they don't feel pressure that you're trying to sell them something. I, I, I think they feel more about... As I mentioned, a dialogue that you come here to make a deal, to close a deal, but you're coming there to help them as well. Right. For sure. And trust me, I get the hardest questions too, right? Which is to your point about other products, there is a competitive situation, right? There is a lot of credibility you get as kind of the founder and technical person to your point to people are willing to hear you about, okay, you're here to solve a problem, but why you versus this other company, right? And being able to articulate that again, crisply, but from the point of view of the customer, right? It shouldn't be my product is better because I built it, but why is it better for you when you deploy it? What are the things that you're going to see? I usually focus on, look, deployment is going to be easier with Menlo. User experience is going to be easier. Here are a couple of key performance things that you should be thinking about when you're thinking about this brand new thing. So the more you can put it in the customer voice to say, these are the things you're going to trip up on. I know I've seen it. And here is how we solve for all of those immediately puts you on their side rather than me walking and say, this competitor solution is bad because of these features. You're delivering the same message, but the tone and the approach of it can make a big difference in the customer's perception of both you and your company values and how you sell, right? Like, I wish everybody sold like that. <laughs> Even me as the customer sometimes I get immediately turned off when somebody comes in all guns blazing, telling me why the other thing is terrible, right? Like nothing is terrible. Everybody put blood, sweat, and tears into these solutions, right? You can go back to the beginning, not the, the entire career, but the entire of Manlo. Is there anything you will do differently? Something that I always say internally, and we continue to 
need to get better about it is we have a great architecture and we solve some real big problems for our customers, but our customers tell us this. And I think, I wonder how we can fix it. And this has been a problem that's dogged us the entire time in my mind is like, we're the best kept secret of security, right? People are always like, when I go talk to customers, I just was on a two week tour of Asia Pacific, talking to some of our most engaged and important customers there, they all keep asking us like, how come you guys are now more deployed or more famous or whatever? So if I could change something from 10 years ago to now, I think we are, a lot of us are come from the technical background and our kind of default mode is to say, let me tell you why we're better and why this is a good solution. I think we would collectively benefit from some more time spent on how do we evangelize, how do we make ourselves better known, those aspects of it does matter when it comes to differentiating yourself to your earlier point across a very busy security field, right? There's 4,000 startups vying for your attention at any given time. I personally didn't spend a lot of time thinking about like, how do we stand out? How do we get the megaphone? How do we punch above our weight? Those are the kind of things I think as a founding team, maybe I would have paid a little more attention, but hopefully we're changing and it's getting better. On a personal level, we all had sometimes bad days. What do you personally do to recoup, to get back to yourself? Meditation, walking, everybody's different. Yeah. So for me, family matters a lot right? I joke with people on your worst day, we're non-brain surgeons, right? So you didn't lose anybody. Keeping yourself grounded with family and friends and all of those things to say, we're doing important work and it's incredibly satisfying, but on our worst day, we still go home and get to be with our family and get to be with our friends and there's tomorrow to come back and fight. So I think I do all of the things that you say, in terms of walking off my bad energy or meditation and awareness and all of those kinds of things, which I think are incredibly good in a high stress environment, like a startup, but at the same time, keeping that bigger picture and perspective is an important thing. I wouldn't want to be in the shoes of a doctor or a surgeon and their bad days are really bad days. I do want to transition to what I call a dark side when you share the stuff that didn't work out. You mentioned some of them already, but maybe you can share a few more. I think that's an interesting question. Things that did not work out. Look, I think in a journey of any startup, let's say there's always moments of what looks like a liquidation event or an exit. And a lot of times they're incredibly high emotion and takes a lot of time, but many times they don't work out. So for whatever reason, there's like a multitude of reasons. So I would say that those times that those didn't work out or didn't come to fruition for Menlo, I think were the right thing for us in retrospect, right? Like when you look back on it, but when you're in the middle of it, those were definitely difficult times, not only for myself, but then I have to rally my team past that to refocus on our agenda. So a smaller company, a startup journey, when it comes to that, I think is probably one of the things that we don't acknowledge how much energy that takes. I wish there was a world that we could say, we're not going to engage in those conversations 
but we have investors and we have a board and we have to, but it ends up being sometimes fairly energy draining than, than positive. But so I would say we've had a couple of moments of those in the Menlo history books, and they were not always the funnest portion of my journey. Thank you very much. Incredible chatting with you. There was so much information. I have a feeling we can talk for another half an hour easily. So thank you for sharing your journey and where you guys right now. Glad to be here talking to you today. Thank you for the opportunity. And I enjoyed our conversation too.